Today's scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with some of the vessels of, house of, of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some food to the people of Israel, some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance, and of skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them to a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Thank you, Connor. How are we doing this morning, church? I'm pretty good. I keep coming to you with a voice that is less than 100%. We were singing lots of, lots of songs yesterday. <clears throat> it happens so easily. You might not know this about me. Um, I never talk about it. But Maggie and I are from the South. Uh, I'm from South Alabama, and she's from Atlanta, Georgia. And when we moved to Ohio just five years ago, there was a period of time where we got a lot of weird looks about our accents. I don't get a whole lot of that anymore. And honestly, I feel like our southern accents, especially mine, drifted away pretty quickly. Although I still get uh, called out sometimes when I say y'all or I don't say pop. Um, but it's, it's so funny. Every time we go home and make it back to the South, I, I start to hear it come out again. Mine comes out a little bit if I'm there for an extended period of time. But for Maggie, it comes back almost immediately. There have been a couple times where she has flown down there without me to see some of her friends, and I'll call her after she arrives. And I, I'm not joking. It hasn't even been two hours, and I'll call her, and I don't, I don't even recognize her voice. I joke about it with her because it really is like I'm talking to a completely different person. It's the Maggie that I met when we were in college. It's not the Maggie that I've lived with in Ohio for five years. Maybe it's something in the air, you know, the closer you get to the coast, it, it starts to come back. Or maybe what's much more likely is that we're very easily influenced by the people in our lives. I, I especially remember that there were times in high school where I would hang out with my uh, friends from school. I was on the basketball team, and, and we had our inside jokes. We had the way that we talked. We, we had our, our attitude. And then in the middle of the week, it would be a Wednesday, and I, I would go to church, and I wouldn't be around my friends from school anymore, but I would still be making the same jokes, and I would still have the same attitude, and I, I, I I would still talk the same way. 
And something about being out of that environment and in the environment at church, I would start to hear myself and say, who said that? Did that come out of my mouth? Because the truth is, at least for me, and I'm going to guess it's the same for some of you too, is that we are way too easily influenced by the people who we allow in our circles. Sometimes that can be a good thing. Like if you wanted to get more serious about studying the Bible, you would start to hang out with people who you know, who you'd see to be spiritual mentors. That reminds me, men, later today at 4.30, we would love if you would, uh, if you would join us as we study the Bible together. Sometimes it can be a good thing how easily we're influenced. But our ease of influence can also mean that we almost have multiple personalities, like we're one person at church and we're another at work, or we're one person when we're with our family and we're another when we're with our friends, and another and another and another. And eventually, you might be able to relate to this too. What used to be multiple personalities, like one for church and one for work, just becomes one for something else. And the church person who we used to juggle is left behind. Now, don't get me wrong. I love hearing Maggie's southern accent. But it is a little eye-opening to see how quickly we can be influenced by the people in our lives. How quickly we become desensitized to certain things and ideas. Last week, we opened this series by considering one of the greatest kings of all time in Jerusalem, Manasseh. During his 55-year reign, Israel saw an incredible amount of peace and prosperity, except it came with a cost, an equally long period of godlessness because he was conforming to the surrounding cultures, because he was assimilating with what they were doing. It was a win in the short run, But in the eternal perspective, he gave up everything. When culture and God's word come into conflict, what are we supposed to do? Should we follow Manasseh and assimilate and pursue the easiest outcome? After all, it did work out pretty well for him while he was king. Should we push back? Should we fight tooth and nail to defend the things that we believe in? Should we withdraw? Should we escape and retreat, have no association with the outside world. I was talking with someone about that earlier this week, and we realized that if you withdraw from the world, you can really only shop at Hobby Lobby and eat at Chick-fil-A. And when we said it like that, it, it, it didn't sound that bad. This is something that Maggie and I struggle with almost daily. And I know that many of you do too, because you've told me. What are we going to do about this? What are our kids? How are our kids going to handle that? The solution to this problem, the conflict between culture and Christ, is that Christians need to rise above what's going on in the culture. Now, it's easier said than done, but our faith cannot be dictated by what is going on in our world, even in seasons where things are going pretty good. The first thing that we need to remind each other daily is that God has been here before. We are not navigating uncharted waters. One one way I know that this is true is because if you haven't noticed this last month, the problems that were plaguing Israel all those many years are oddly similar to the ones that are still plaguing us today. 
That's especially true when we consider the life of Daniel, who we'll talk about this morning. Someone who lived at a time where the cultural and political world was not pointing towards God. It might be pointing to a God, but it's not pointing towards my God. Last week, we saw Manasseh's response to culture, and we'll revisit him at the end of the month in a couple weeks. But for the next two weeks, I want us to turn our focus to Daniel and his friends and see how they were navigating this culture problem. I, I, I alluded to this last week, but Daniel lived during a time of political turmoil and uncertainty for God's people. And even though he demonstrated great faithfulness, that's what he's known for, his life might not have had the type of success that many people might have hoped it, it did. But that's okay, because God's in control. He's been here before. And faithfulness to God is far more important than cultural success. Join me this morning in Daniel chapter 1 as we look at some of the cultural problems that he had to deal with. If you've been looking at our world today and haven't realized it yet, we have a great deal in common with the Israelites and with Daniel when they were living in exile, who were living in a land that was not their home. It was read for us a few moments ago, but I want to highlight again some of the particulars about the world that Daniel was living in. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The exile is beginning. Uh, the prophets have been talking about this moment for, for a long time. Babylon has arrived to assume control of the promised land and assume control of God's people. In waves, people will be brought in and out at the will of the Babylonian rulers. To give you an idea of when this is happening, you remember last week we talked about Manasseh, who did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but brought five decades of peace and prosperity. Well, that peace and prosperity evaporates just about as quickly as it came. We're only a couple decades removed from Manasseh's reign when Israel and Judah were so powerful. And now the people are, are going to pay the price. They're going to pay the price for what happens when people put their faith in earthly powers. And continuing in verse 3, and, uh, and then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Daniel was one of these youths, along with his friends, who we'll see face the fire next week. When Daniel was brought into this new land, with a new language, with new gods, with new traditions, new lifestyles, new priorities. He's asked to conform. The strategy for these empires as they were invading these, these new territories is they would bring in numbers of young people and grow them to be accustomed to what is going on in, in their new empire. And after a short amount of time, in this case three years, these Israelite youths would then serve as mediators between the new culture and the old culture. These youths would be influential for the peace in the nation because they're from the old, but now they're a part of the new. A reason they did this is because Babylon understands something very important about people. 
people are easily influenced by their peers. If they can educate the youths, well, they can win over the masses. Sound familiar? This is the environment that Daniel's being led into, and this is his response in verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. Daniel and his friends were resolved to stand up for the things that they believed in, to protect those things. Odds are we're pretty familiar with this particular story and what happens next. Daniel makes a request to be exempt from the food requirements um, and issues a test. After 10 days, he should be compared with the other servants who were eating the king's food and drinking, uh, drinking the king's wine. And after 10 days, Daniel and his friends were seen to be healthier than their uh, Babylonian counterparts. It's a small victory for Daniel and his friends and their commitment to faithfulness. But their success doesn't stop there. Let's continue in verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar and the king spoke with them. Among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. At the end of these three years, it appears that their plan worked. They were successful. Not only were they in better physical shape because of the food that they were eating, because of their spiritual commitments, but they also found success in their other endeavors and in their work. They were wiser than all the other wise men and enchanters in Babylon. And there's a note here at the end about how long this success lasts, all the way to the first year of King Cyrus. This is just a small note to make us aware that Daniel is going to outlast the Babylonian empire. It's amazing. A spiritual success, right? I don't want to pump the brakes too hard on Daniel and his friends, but I think it's worth recognizing something about their success. The thing is, even though Daniel had immediate success in his youth, and he found uh, he found a role among the ranks of the Babylonians. His battle was far from over. If anything, the success that he found in his youth made the stakes higher, and it made the opposition harder. Sure, their spiritual commitments had a favorable outcome this time. But what about the next time? And the next time? And the next time. These, uh, these four youths were faithful to God, but did it have any impact on the people other than it made the Babylonians eat a little healthier food? I don't want to take too much away from Daniel because he really is a role model for what we should do in a hostile environment. But I think I've been m missing a vital part of this, uh, of this story. 
Because Daniel's life is not about success. It's not an example of, if you have faithfulness to God, you will win. You will be safe from the fire and the lions. That's not what his life is about. It's not about, here's how you transform your culture by obeying obeying the Lord. Here's what you should do to try to control the world around you. Here's what you need to do in order to find success in the political world, because he doesn't find success in the political world. He works in Babylon for the Babylonian kings. And if you think for a minute about what him and his friends did, even though they were faithful to God, they went through the three years where they became experts in the Babylonian literature. They became experts in the Babylonian lifestyles. They became experts in their gods. Wouldn't it have been nice if they would have came out of the Babylonian academy and they had converted all those others to serve God? Wouldn't that, have been, wouldn't that have been great? Their success didn't come by their ability to transform, transform the culture. Their success didn't come by their ability to influence any of the Babylonians. They were successful because they resisted. They were successful because they didn't conform. You remember Manasseh from last week? By all accounts, he couldn't have been more successful. But he wasn't faithful. He conformed, he bended, he welcomed and embraced these other cultures. And even though it meant multiple decades of peace and prosperity, it also meant multiple decades of ignorance and spiritual emptiness. And in David's case, his faithfulness didn't bring wide success. Sure, he was successful in his private life. He was able to rise among, uh, rise among the ranks, but he was still living in a hostile environment. Sure, he was a trusted advisor to these worldly leaders, but it, it meant that he continues to be a target of hatred and a target of new laws that are passed to try to stop him. Do I need to remind you of the lions? Faithfulness to God does not always equal peace and prosperity. It does not always bring about dramatic cultural change. But that's okay. Daniel remains faithful, knowing that at the end of the road, there might be lions. A question I want us to ask ourselves this morning and over the next uh, uh, over the next few weeks. Is it worth it to do what is right if nobody cares? Is it worth it to do the unpopular thing if it means that there are lions in the future? Is it worth it to be faithful to God if nothing changes in your world? The obvious answer we're probably saying in our minds is, yes, absolutely, it's worth it. There are so many blessings that come from being a child of God. But are we okay with that? Are we okay if nothing changes? Are we okay if it gets worse? How do we keep our conviction when the opposition appears 
to be all around us? How can we remain confident if it looks like there is no hope in this world? Because I'm scared. I think this is a point in time where Christians need to reassess how we measure success. As much as I would love to see this country become the city that's set on the hill, I can't put my faith in that happening. Don't get me wrong, faithfulness to God can bring about worldly success, but faithfulness to God doesn't promise worldly success. In fact, Jesus promises the exact opposite. I certainly believe that our God is powerful enough to make those things happen, even in the example of Daniel, who was so faithful it says in verse 9 that it was, it was the Lord who was at work in the hearts of the Babylonians. Cultural change and transformation can come. And one day when Jesus returns, it will come. But the world will never change if we change first. Because what can happen all too quickly is we'll begin to look like the people around us and we'll start to use the language of the people around us, and we'll grow accustomed to their way of life, and eventually, just like when I call Maggie when she's in the South and I'm up here, it's like we're a completely different person, and not in a good way. No one out there will ever see God if no one in here is able to show them. But more importantly, we won't see God if we aren't resolved. If we aren't resolved to seek him and to find him when we seek him with all of our heart. The one thing I want us to take away this morning, just one thing, is that Daniel's faithfulness was not measured by his ability to change the culture. It was measured by his resolve to not let the culture change him. Are we sharing in that same kind of resolve? For one, we need to be resolved together as brothers and sisters in Christ who are committed to the same word, to the same values, to the truth. Daniel had his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and I'm, I'm sure that helped. But we also need to be able to walk among the enemy, to exist in exile, and not be influenced. That was his real success. Because when God's people start assimilating, when God's people blur the lines between worldliness and godliness, when we lose our resolve, sin wins. It's only going to win for a short time, though. And when it wins, the people who enter exile, initially against their will, aren't willing to come home when the voice is crying out in the wilderness, make your ways straight, declares the Lord. They had grown comfortable in their new home. Are we comfortable in ours? The invitation this morning is simple. If you're not baptized, then no amount of resolve will protect you from sin. The wages of sin is death. If you are a believer, then do not lose heart. And if you have lost heart, if your resolve is weak and you've compromised 
on the truth. We'd love to pray for you, and we'd certainly love to get into the Word with you. Our only hope in this world is God. All he is asking is for us to be faithful. To be faithful like our lives depend on it. And I know that he'll take care of the rest. Even if it means that there are lions in our future, especially if it means that there are lions in our future, he's been here before. The truth is, even when it looks like there's no hope in this world and we're scared, the hope of Jesus Christ is always available. And when it looks like the opposition is all around us, our Lord's in control. Lord, please give us hearts and eyes to see you, to be resolved, to trust in you alone. If you have any need this morning, whether it's here, on, uh, here in person or it's on Facebook, we hope that you'll make it known, if not right now, then at any time this week. Let's be resolved. If you have a need, make it known as we stand and as we sing.